Hello and welcome back to the God's Story podcast, exploring the big picture of the Bible to bring us back to the gospel. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm joined once again by Rido, the Reverend Ian Reed of King's Grace Presbyterian Church in Palmerston North. And Ian, today we're in a very special space. We're in, uh, we've decamped to Whanganui and we're in the... Uh, uh, the Space Studio Gallery at St Hill Street, recently renovated Art Deco building from the 30s. Uh, they have a, a wonderful gallery downstairs, and we're in the upstairs part, Rito, where all the artist workshops are. We, we're the artists today, I think. We are the artists, so I think there's an artist in there somewhere. But uh, yes, yeah, so if you hear a little bit of noise while we're talking, uh, just ignore it. It's part of being in a working art gallery, really. Well, today, Ian, we're continuing our series on Hebrews, and we're up to chapter 10, verses 11 to 25. And last time, we saw that all the threads of Hebrews are coming together in this chapter, and verse 10 in particular gives us a good summary of the letter. And by that will, we have been made holy or sanctified through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So how has Jesus made us holy and perfected us through his sacrifice then? Yeah, this is what all of Hebrews is kind of been getting towards, isn't it? That this this is what God has been trying to do uh, to us from the beginning of the Bible right to, through through to the end, is that God is making a holy people for himself. And how does he do that? He doesn't uh, require us to be holy. He tries to, he does require us to be holy, but not in the sense of uh, us trying to make ourselves holy, but he is the one that makes us holy. And he does that by Jesus coming, uh, by dying, uh, and that we take on his righteousness and we and he takes on our sin okay today Ian, we're looking at chapter 10 verses 11 to 25 and let's read first of all verses 11 to 14 uh, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins but when christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of god waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool at his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Okay, then how does the writer remind us again here of the ineffectiveness of the sacrificial system? Well, you've got here, again, the, what, what's the priest doing? The priest is standing, and that's going to be reflected in what Jesus does in a minute. Uh, but you, So you've got the priest standing. What, what are they doing? Daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Just this thing, this idea of over and over and over again, these sacrifices needing to be uh, made. It's quite an interesting uh, kind of thing that you see that uh, right from when Moses' law is kind of in, in, introduced right through, right to Jesus, that this is what's happening over and over again in the temple. Yeah, why was the Old Testament sacrificial system so ineffective? That's, that's a really good question, uh, Brent, and it kind of depends on uh, the word ineffective. Maybe it kind of depends on, on what the law is trying to achieve. It's, try, it's ineffective in making us holy, yes, because it, it can never pay for our sin, but it's not ineffective in the sense of showing us that it's ineffective, if that makes sense. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's effective in showing us that we need something else. Yeah, how did the Old Testament sacrificial system point to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the point is uh, that the punishment for sin is death. And we see that right back uh, in the fall with Adam and Eve, that, that this is what needs to happen. And so what the sacrificial system does is it points to that fact that life needs to be taken to pay for sin and 
the problem is is that animal lives and no matter how many that they won't do that they don't they don't help yeah in what senses did jesus offer a single sacrifice for sins well because he is god himself both god and man he's able to do that that he is the one that can take on sin and uh offer the sacrifice once and for all. It, it, it's the thing that keeps popping up in Hebrews, isn't it? That this once and for all. But how can he do it? Well, because it's God's blood being spilled. Now, that's the that's the only reason. If it was one of us, it wouldn't work. Uh, but because it is God's blood being spilled, it's his own precious blood, it is effective because it's eternal. Okay, so then how does the atonement work? We looked at this a bit last time, but can we just go back? What actually happens on the cross when Jesus dies? Well... Yeah, that word atonement is its kind of a transactional word a little bit, isn't it? Um, sometimes we don't like to think of uh, God kind of working in this way. And, and there are different aspects that we can talk about, but one of them is as a transaction that Jesus takes what I deserve and I get what he, kind of the benefits of, of his relationship. So he takes my sin and everything that, that uh, kind of flows from that, which is death, uh, and I receive his righteousness and everything that flows from that, which is relationship. Uh, and life. Why does Jesus sit down at the right hand of God there in verse 12? Because his job is done. It's, this is the opposite to what the, the priests, the priests are there standing, and this is what the, the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us. The priest stands and, and works and does this thing every single day, but what does Jesus do? He, because his job is done, what does he do? He gets to sit down and have a break, basically. What does the writer say Jesus is waiting for, though, Rito? Sorry, which verse? Uh, what about verse 13? Yeah, waiting, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So he's waiting for judgment, I presume, there. Well, isn't, yeah, and I think it's also he's waiting for, the, for his ministry to be complete. And so you, you have this idea when you read, particularly Luke and Acts together, that Jesus' ministry on earth isn't finished uh, with when he leaves, the ministry continues on through the Holy Spirit, and that's what we see in the book of Acts. But that, that doesn't end there. The, the, the message of the gospel is going to the ends of the earth, and when that finally happens, that's when Jesus returns. So Jesus' sacrifice then, I suppose, consummates history. Yeah, it does. It, it, it's both in a sense of it being the one point of history where we can actually say God has come to earth, but it also points forward uh, to the, the final consummation as well. What does uh, Jesus' sacrifice achieve there in verse 14? It, again, it's, it's flowing back to that once and for all, isn't it? Let me read it again. For, for by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You, last time we talked about uh, that we are sanctified. Remember that back in verse 10. And now you have uh, this. Uh, so there was this kind of the one, the one-off kind of idea. Now you've got the process kind of idea there in fourteen, being sanctified. So that idea of positional sanctification—that's what we are—but uh, also progressive sanctification. This is what we're becoming. How are we made perfect forever? We better, we better have a look at the meaning of that Greek word there for perfected. The the meaning kind of of, of perfected uh, kind of is the this idea of. It being it being done, you know, kind of it's not a it's not a something that kind of might happen in the future, but it is it has been done, uh, and so that idea that uh, we have been perfected, and, and this is such a, a key verse, verse fourteen, isn't it in in the book? Mm. For, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time. It's kind of you've got the sense that it's um, it's actually happened, you know, kind of there's nothing that can can 
be added to it. There's nothing that can actually be taken away from it. It has happened. Is the term perfected in Hebrews much the same as definitive sanctification? Is that is the writer of the Hebrews using the same theological thinking? I think so. What do you mean by definitive sanctification, though? Well, that's the next question. Um, <laughs> so when he says that we've been perfected, that means we've been made holy, we've been changed, our inner natures have been changed by the Holy Spirit, uh, which is pretty much the, the meaning, I understand, of, def of what you call positional or what I call definitive sanctification. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's happened, but yet we're, we're not perfect yet, clearly. I well, speak for yourself there. I'm speaking for myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's totally right. We are perfected, are we? And so it's this idea of we're becoming what we already are. And so in that sense, we're not hypocrites, that we're not becoming something that we're not, but we're becoming something that we already are. And it's that idea of we're progressing to that state. In, in what senses are we still being sanctified then? Well, in the sense of it's not our position, as in how God sees us, but in our nature and our character, when our sin needs to slowly be worked out. And I think if God was to show us all of our sin at once, I think it would destroy us. We just we couldn't bear uh, kind of how sinful and how rotten we really are de deep down. But that God is kind of working in us by the Spirit, just slowly. Uh, working those things out of us and so we're progressing to that state mm. and so that's the distinction then between definitive and progressive sanctification yeah I, I would think so that that often we people talk about the, the distinction between justification and sanctification but we actually have a distinction within sanctification itself that this is who we are and who we're, we're becoming at the same time so the writer to hebrews can say we've been perfected but that that perfection is still being worked out in one sense but not in another yeah yeah definitely <clears throat> what do we say to someone who says i don't feel perfect i don't feel sanctified well good because you're not <laughs> in, in the not not in a progressive sense but we need to be reminded that just because we don't feel that way that doesn't mean it's not true and so it's more the the understanding the objective rather than the subjective. So the, the objective is that this is what God has declared you rather than the subjective is of what we feel. Because if I was to, if it was a microscope put on my life, you could definitely say, no, you're not uh, sanctified. Uh, but that doesn't matter. It's the objective, what the God declares us. How can we then pursue holiness or sanctification? What, what does that look like in the Christian life, Rito? Yeah, I think it's... It's one of those things where God is bringing us in line with his will. And so the, the kind of key thing that I think that, that we need to think about is what are the things that are forming us to be like God? Uh, and so that formation of who we are, how, what are we feeding our souls with? What are the habits that we're in that kind of help us uh, live out who we already are? If that's who we are, then how do we live out who we are? And it's not about trying harder, but it's about forming uh, kind of things around us that will shape us to be like Jesus. So things like the simple thing of getting up in the morning and what do you do? O you know, praying or opening the, opening the word, things like that is just uh, is a way of starting the day in a sense of, okay, I'm not my own. I belong to someone else. I'm not here, here for my own selfishness, but I'm here to serve something else, uh, which is God, obviously. And so opening, opening the word, opening, opening in prayer, just things like that and, and doing that through the day, it kind of, it has this shaping on us, you know, gathering together with other Christians. That's, you know, kind of what we do at church. It has this kind of profound effect on us, even though they're simple 
things and things that, that may not even seem that important, but they are extremely important. In what senses are we like, I think you used the analogy in your sermon the other day, we're like adopted children learning the habits of a new family. I, li- I really liked that image, actually. Explain that for us. Yeah, so it's kind of like the way that I see it is, is that uh, we're kind of being children abandoned out in the, out in the jungle uh, and a family has come and adopted that family. So we've learnt the ways of the jungle, but uh, this family has come and adopted us. And when you come in, you, you've learnt the, the, how to live in a wild way, but you need to come and live in a maybe a civilised way, the way of the family. And you're not going to just instantly get rid of the habits of living out in the jungle, are you? You have to come and learn how to do that. And that, that's a long kind of process of this is the way that the family lives. Now, if you, if you keep living in the way of the wild, it doesn't stop you being a part of the family, does it? You know, you, you just are kind of being silly and probably destructive in how you're living, uh, but that doesn't mean that you stop being a part of the family. Uh, and so your habits and your behaviour and your character is slowly shaped by the way of the family. Mm, It's a great analogy, isn't it? Well, we come on to chapter 10, verses 15 to 18. I shall read on. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after these days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So, uh, Rito, again, we have a quote from Jeremiah chapter 31. Mm. How was Jeremiah 31 fulfilled then by the Lord Jesus Christ? Yeah, it's, it's, again, it's a good question, isn't it? And it's interesting, isn't it, that in Hebrews we have all of these quotes from the Old Testament because what they're doing is they're showing us how the Old Testament is pointing to that fulfilment of Jesus. And look, look at what he's saying there. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. What, what are the after those days? Jeremiah is looking forward to the time when Jesus comes and he says, what's going to happen uh, to the people, to God's people, when that fulfilment happens? He will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Jesus has come. The covenant has been fulfilled and a new covenant has been made. And that's what Jeremiah is pointing to, is this new covenant that Jesus brings. And Jeremiah, of course, writing about, what, 500 years before the Lord Jesus Christ yeah, came least, to earth? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So how does Jeremiah 31 then tell us about God's plan for history? What's, what is God doing? Uh, and really, this is what we what our podcast is about, isn't it? Is that it is... The story. It is the story, mm. isn't mm. it? What, what is God really doing? He's gathering people for himself to worship him uh, and as all creation will come into worship. Yeah. Mm. I, I know that sounds a bit simplistic maybe or maybe a little bit egocentric on God's behalf, but if that is true, then this is what the whole Bible is kind of driving towards. Mm. Uh, and how then, because this is a passage in Jeremiah about the new covenant, how does the new covenant, or what is it? What is the new covenant, first of all, Rito? And then how does it differ from the old covenant or covenants? Well, where before you had the law written against you, you know, so it was on a piece, of, it was on stone tablets, so it was firm, but it was written against you, this is what you must do. If we see here what is going on, the law is written on, on people's hearts. And so it's whether the law stood against us, now it's written within us. And it's quite a different thing that this new covenant in Jesus' blood, and Jesus uses the, uh, at the Last Supper, he uses the same language that was used uh, when Moses received the law, that this, 
this is the blood of the covenant. And so here we have a new covenant. And where is it written? It's written on our hearts. It's a changed heart rather than something that stands against us. So how is the law placed in us? I don't I, don't, I find that a, a difficult concept to, to grasp. How does, how does God place his law inside of us? How can we ask the difficult questions and I have to answer them? <laughs> it's my job. <laughs> I sh- we should swap this someday. <laughs> okay, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> but I, won't, I wouldn't answer them as well as you do. No, I don't know about that. But it's, it's, it must be the Holy Spirit, isn't it? That as God expresses uh, how he wants us to live, you know, we're given the Holy Spirit and that's the reshaping of who we are. Uh, and it's about really coming back to what the law is about. The law is an expression of who God is, of how to live in relationship with this God. Uh, and if if that is what it is, and if God revealing himself, he reveals himself to us in the, in the Holy Spirit. It must be kind of through that, uh, that it gets placed in us and our lives come in line with that. So how is God then able to remember our sin no more? That's a fairly incredible thing for him to do, isn't it? Either he's got a bad memory or he chooses to forget. Right? But he chooses to forget because um, Jesus' sacrifice is so powerful. You know, that, that blood spilled is so powerful that it's, it's just done away with. And it's not forget in the sense of, oh, what just, you know, kind of, I, I can't remember. It's because we still have the, um, the, there will be a sense, I think, that we understand what sin was like. Uh, and don't want to go back into it. So it's not like kind of we, we end up in a state of innocence or naivety, uh, but it's that sense of it's not held against us anymore. It will never be held against us. Mm. How does this passage speak to people who are struggling with their memory of past sins in their life? As in they keep coming up or they're forgetting them? Uh, n- <laughs> no, they're not forgetting them. They're quite the opposite. They're remembering them. They're ho- uh, they're, they're maybe... Um, past sin that really haunts it haunts people there's guilt that haunts people guilt keeps coming up in mm. people's lives doesn't it yeah I think that's a real problem for all of us mm. at times the things that really pop up yeah and how do they make us feel they feel we feel terrible about those things that have happened and uh, that we that we might have done for what whatever it is and I think again it's coming back to the objective rather than than the subjective what has God declared me what has God done with those sin he hasn't forgotten those sin, as in he hasn't done anything about them. He's actually dealt with them, and he's dealt with them on the cross. And so it's about coming back to that all the time, I think. He's coming back to Jesus' death uh, and understand, understanding that that objectively means that he's declared us holy. It doesn't mean that those there might not be consequences from those sin that we still have to deal with, but um, there will be no more consequences in terms of our relationship with God. What do we do about sin, though, Ian, that we feel that God just can't forgive? You know, you sit there and think, I just don't think God can forgive this, what I've done to somebody. I I think that kind of flows out of pride a little bit. Um, I I know that sounds a bit odd, you know, kind of, but that your sin can be so great that God can't forgive it. You know, kind of, it's it's kind of negative pride, I know, but I think it still flows out of pride, but it's just not true that you have to see that for what it is, that one, it's an untruth, and one, it's probably an untruth that you've been telling yourself over a long period of time. And you need to experience the grace that Jesus offers, really. Mm. Why is confession of sin then so important? Because, we, well, if we don't confess, then we're not owning up to what we've done. And this is something that Christians have found freedom in for such a long period of time, that when we do confess our sin, whether that's directly to God or to other people, burdens are lifted uh, we feel 
not only feel, but it's kind of the act of doing it kind of has that process of being released from those things and finding forgiveness in that, yeah. Mm. Should our churches then have regular confessions of sin as part of their service? Well... People can, can come and confess to me that I can hold those things against them. Is that what, you, is that what you're no, saying? I'm not <laughs> suggesting that you do do confession, Rito. No, I th- I think that it's probably more in a in a kind of more pastoral sense that with people that you trust. Yes, I think I think I don't think it has to be a regular. You kind of let's get together on a Friday night and kind of have. No, have I'm thinking more of uh, I'm thinking more of regular uh, confessions of sin in the worship service. Oh, I think yes, definitely yeah. yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, you had oh, the yeah. old the old Anglican prayer book, and probably the new Anglican prayer book too, uh, always had that place for a conf- a confession of sin right at the start. And yeah, yeah. And the the issue that I often have with um, with the prayer book is that it could kind of sound like I know this is not Cramner's intention, but it could kind of sound like if up to that point I wasn't forgiven, but now I've confessed. I am forgiven, um, and I know that's not not the point of it. The, the point is, is kind of coming and saying, yes, we haven't um, kind of done what, all that we could do, and, and we haven't always kind of obeyed in the way that we should. The and the reason why we can come and do confession, I think, is is because we are in relationship. Again, it's coming back to that family, isn't it? You, just because you don't live in the way of the family doesn't stop you being a part of the family, and that's why I think we can do confession. Is, and particularly we should be doing it as a church body, is because we need to acknowledge what we haven't done, how we haven't lived in the way that God has asked us to. Uh, but be, that doesn't exclude us, but we still need to acknowledge it. Mm. How can we model God's attitude to forgiven sin to each other? I'm thinking here of someone who um, has uh, had someone do something really nasty to them uh, or unfortunate and they just can't let go of it. What, what's your advice there? It's a difficult one, isn't it? And... One of the big things that we do that when we're hurt is that we tend to show other people our hurt. Uh, if I've got a cut on my hand, I'm often you know, saying, oh, look, look at the cut on my hand. But we do that with when we're cut deeper emotionally as well. And so one of the things that we need to be aware of is that when we're hurt by other people, we don't go around showing that hurt to other people. I think that's, that can be an important thing because we're kind of dragging other people into the conflict. Uh, and... I think, firstly, the, the first thing that we need to do is acknowledge that we are also in that position, that we hurt others. Uh, and so it's kind of a... We need to understand that we are also fallen human beings um, that can that can hurt others and acknowledge that. Uh, but when people do hurt us, I think there needs to be an openness to forgiveness. Uh, and when people do ask for forgiveness, it is offering it freely, offering it in a way that kind of restores the relationship. And even when people don't come and ask for, for forgiveness, I think we need to have an acknowledgement um, that we are also fallen and that sometimes we just we need to get on. And and forget forget about it if we can. I know that sounds difficult, but model what God does as he forgets our sin. Yeah, I think that takes time though, doesn't mm. it? And I think that I've heard from quite a few people um, that when often they've gone and told a pastor about someone that's hurt them and the first thing the pastor will say is you need to forgive them that's the very first thing uh, rather than acknowledging yes you have been hurt by this person you have been wronged that that process of forgiveness needs to take time and it's okay that it takes time we shouldn't just be expecting to go to kind of flick this switch and go oh yeah everything's okay now that 
it takes time to work through those things, and that's okay. Uh, but in time, it does need to be worked through, and it does need, it does need forgiveness, and it does need to be a time of forgetting it. Yeah. Mm. Okay, we read on uh, chapter 10, verses 19 to 21. Uh, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So in what sense has all of Hebrews been leading to this point, Ian? Well, look at where we're going. Like, there's a huge therefore at the beginning of that uh, verse. And it's kind of, this is, this is the summary of the whole, the whole book, really. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we have, where the, where the old high priests, when they went in, what did they have to do? They, they, they could go in only once a year to the most holy places. Here we're saying that we are free to enter. We are free to have relationship with God. What are the two key things we're shown about Jesus here in this passage? Um, well, you've got uh, that, that he is the one going before us, I think, in particular. Mm. So by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. So he is the one that, that has gone before us uh, and he has opened up the way. So he's kind of the path. It's a bit of a sick kind of thing there. We've got through his flesh and it's kind of, but anyway. But you've also got the other thing that he's the great high priest over the house. So he's the one leading us in, but he's also the one uh, who has mediated for us. Why was the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and temple off bounds to everyone except the high priest once a year? So it was this space where kind of uh, God's presence existed. Or I, think it's, I think it's referred to as the glory of his presence. So mm. it's, not, it's not that God kind of sitting there kind of waiting and kind of thinking, hey, why is no one coming to see me? It's this kind of space where um, kind of the, the hot spot of where, where kind of God is on earth. And what, what we have there is the high priest can only go in there once a year because it is so holy. It, even even they're not allowed, allowed to just freely walk in. They have to do all these sacrifices, purify themselves in all these different ways, uh, but can only go in there once a year because it is so special. In what sense is Jesus our great high priest and a great high priest over the house of God? So he, he is the great high priest because he is the one that mediates. He is the one that can, that, that can go in. Now, the difference between him and the other high priest is that he can freely go in. He can, he can go in because uh, he is going in as someone who doesn't need to cleanse himself. Uh, but along with that, he's also a mediator as well. Mm. We carry on from verse 20. I'll, I'll read back to 21. And since we have a great high priest or great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, uh, Rito, how are these verses let us or let us verses? Yeah, this is a, a, a salad passage, isn't it? It is. Lot, lot, lots of lettuce. Lot, lot of lettuce lots of lettuce. Yep. Um, you've got all of these uh, different letters. Is it, but, but sorry, that, 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 it's not what I meant to say there. But the, the idea is that as God's people kind of coming in together, and that includes the writer of Hebrews here, so it's let us. It's not just you. He's not pointing the finger, but he's saying as a group of people, as God's church, 
come together and let's do this together. What are the five things we're exhorted to do in these verses? I think there are five letters in exhortations in NIV and three in ESV. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, so let's work through them. 22, you've got let us draw near to God. You can always pull me up if I, I get any wrong. 20, 23, you've got let us hold unswervingly to the hope. 24, uh, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. 25, let us not give up meeting together. Was that five? Mm, mm, that's five, I think. So how then can we have a full assurance of faith? Well, have a look. it's the second part of that verse, which is really important. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. This, this idea that if it was up to us, we couldn't have a sure, sure assurance of faith. But it is what has happened to us. Our hearts have been sprinkled. Uh, that idea, again, it's going, that, that is an image uh, back to Moses, where Moses, after receiving the law, he sprinkles the priests. He actually sprinkles everyone with, with, with blood which doesn't really clean anything, but anyway. Uh, but the idea that this blood is the thing that cleans you, he's picking up on that idea here in Hebrews uh, in saying that we have been sprinkled with Jesus' blood. Mm. What do we say to those who just don't feel assured and don't have any assurance, sense of assurance at all? Yeah, that, that's a, it is a good question, isn't it? And I, we all struggle with that at times, don't we? But again, I think it's coming back to that objective thing, that what has Jesus done rather than how I feel? What has Jesus done for me? Um, he is the one who is my high priest. He is the one who is my mediator. He is the one that has died for me. And God has God's blood has been spilled. It will not be ineffective. How do we hold unswervingly to the hope that we possess? And I think this is part of the problem that's going on for these particular people, that they're, they're still working out who Jesus is. They're trying to work out, uh, is he really who he says he is? Is he the son of God? What has he really done for us? Uh, and so he, the, the writer of Hebrews is exhorting them to say, hey, no, it is true. Look at all these truths we've been telling about. Come and hold on to those things because they are actually true. Mm. How is God faithful to us then, according to this passage? Well, what, is he, what has he done? Um, in 23, you've got, therefore, he who promised is faithful. Well, he kind of, from beginning to end of the Bible, it's all about the same thing, isn't it? About bringing people mm. to himself. Uh, and, you know, kind of, if we had been sitting right back at the beginning of the Bible, we'd go, oh, what's this God kind of like? Uh, but as God reveals himself, that is how he reveals himself. He is a faithful God. And, you know, he kind of, even you have with people like Abraham, they're kind of still working out what God is like. But we can look back at that and say, yes, he is faithful. Mm. In what senses are those last three let us exhortations communal? Yeah, so that, let's uh, hold, look at them again. So it's the let us draw near with a true heart. So again, it's the God's people doing that together. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And so that's often why we, we say creeds together and we, we meet together and we sing together because uh, it's something that we do together. And then let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Oh, I, I've missed one, haven't I? Have I, I don't know. I, not, I, I, not, oh, sorry, yeah, and not neglecting not, 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 not neglecting meeting together is yeah, the other one. That, yeah. that's the one. Mm. I've got two Bibles open here, so it's kind of... <laughs> trying to get that right is hard. But particularly that let us not give up meeting together. What it seems to be is that this group of people that, that it's been written to, they were probably a part of a synagogue, but they've kind of got a Bible study that, or something like that separate to it and they're meeting kind of separately to, to what's going on in the synagogue. And you have here, um, keep doing that, because if you, if you don't 
do that, then you're going to fall away. Yeah, what, what are the dangers of not meeting regularly? I guess that's one of them. Yeah, I think you, you just, you lose steam, don't you? you? And you can kind of work back. You know, you can't be spurred on to love other people. You, you lose your hope. You lose your confession. You know, kind of all of those things start to wane, don't they, pretty quickly if you stop meeting with others. Mm. What are some of the ways, then, in closing, we can encourage one another in community? Do you write, I think, uh, that church is a God's gym where he can train us for the redeemed creation? Yeah, I kind of... Um, you know, churches aren't this space where we should expect perfection, but a place where we should expect training. And so God puts us in community with other people that we might not particularly like uh, or particularly get on with or have the same views on things. But that's because in that God is revealing our own sin, he's revealing our own character and how we need to change and grow. And so he puts us in relationship with those people so that we can do that, so we can serve them, so they can serve us. All of these things, he gives us gifts uh, to kind of do that. Now, we're going to, now, that's going to be hard. It's going to be just like working out, you know, at a gym. You expect it to be hard. And if, you want, if we want our character to be changed, if we want to be, uh, kind of become more like Jesus, then that's going to take time. It's going to be difficult, but it will pay off and will be worth it. Mm. Rito, the Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston, North New Zealand. Thank you very much. And thank you to Sarah Williams of Space Studio Gallery here at St Hill Street in Whanganui, where we've had a beautiful space upstairs to sit in and talk about the uh, letter to the Hebrews. And uh, next time, Ian, we'll come on to explore a bit more of Hebrews 10. Thanks so much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com. Godstorypodcast.com.